0: One of the shared cultural films, stories, storylines is Star Wars. Almost everybody has seen Star Wars. Now, it's kind of become a big thing that's kind of a little bit overdone. There's an amusement park now at Disney and all that kind of stuff. Not against it. I'm all for it. But when it came out, the first three films, which are four, five, and six, go figure. But the first three films in the late 70s, early 80s, you know, it was a cooler kind of new thing that we didn't really know this plot line. We know it now, but we didn't know it then. I say we, I lived back then. You, half of you didn't, but just take my word for it. As we're watching it, each film, you know, we're learning new things each time. And, you know, one of the things that we, that was sort of a shocking scene in The Empire Strikes Back, the second film, that left us hanging with kind of two suspended plot twists. One was Han Solo, one of the loved characters of the film all of a sudden gets caught by a bounty hunter and put in something. Turns out he's cryo-frozen. We weren't sure, but he's cryo-frozen, and that's kind of what happened to him. There's nothing else of him uh, at the end of that film. And it's one of those things where 40, what, it was, that was 1980, 42 years later, somebody could have make a bread dough uh, thing of that in the Bay Area. This is a mom and her daughter are bakeries. They have a bakery, and so they made a six-foot... Uh, recreation of the Han Solo character uh, getting cryo-frozen. And when people walk into the bakery, most people, uh, that right away brings up the whole, the whole film. That right away brings up the whole story. They, uh, they Just seeing that brings up the whole, the whole plot line because it's such an epic kind of a scene in the film. And it reappears again in The, the Return of the Jedi. Now, here's the thing. In Jesus' day, there was stuff like that too, not film, obviously. Uh, but in Jesus' day, there was literature that everybody read, everybody heard, told stories. And Daniel 7 was one of those. And In, in Jesus' day, Daniel 7 would be one of those shared cultural stories. It had a plot twist that was unresolved, sort of suspended. And it became something that people were always, all of them familiar with. And it, it, Daniel 7 begins what we might call the magical mystery tour part of Daniel. It's the maybe Lucy in the Skies with Diamonds part of Daniel. It's the apocalyptic visions of Daniel. Before it was the narratives, now we're getting into stuff that we we don't understand. It's weird imagery, weird symbols, and weird kind of metaphors and numbers and things like that. And in Daniel 7, we have this this apocalyptic literature comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, which means to, to uncover, to, to take away the veil and to reveal something hidden. So when you read apocalyptic literature, it's, it's hard at first, but when you understand the symbols and understand kind of the themes of the Bible, it provides an overview of something that otherwise is hidden. It sort of lets, lets you zoom out and see your life now with eyes that you wouldn't otherwise be able to see. That happened to William Shatner last year when he, uh, the Captain Kirk on the Starship Enterprise, he played Captain Kirk, uh, but he never was in space really until last year. He got to go up with Jeff Bezos' ship, the Blue Origin Capsule, got to go and, and see, the, see the Earth outside the atmosphere. And when he came back, you know, everybody's expecting him to high five, and he had to kind of fulfill that part But he said he was actually more in grief than he'd ever experienced in his entire life. He writes this, actually he says this to NPR in an interview. He said after he got off the capsule, he said, I was crying. I didn't know what I was crying about. I had to go off someplace and sit down and think, what's the matter with me? And I realized I was in grief. He was experiencing what space philosopher, I don't don't know quite what a space philosopher does, but space philosopher Frank White says that what, what William Shatner was experiencing is something that every astronaut experiences when they see, when they go to space for the first time and come back, he was experiencing what they call the overview effect. The overview effect is this cognitive and emotional shift in our sense of awareness, our conscien- consciousness, our sense of identity, that when for the first time somebody leaves the earth's atmosphere and looks back and sees the earth from the context of the universe, from the context of space, something happens in them that totally changes their perspective of life. And in, in his case, William Shatner's case, it just brought this incredible sense of grief, Seeing, looking back at the earth from the context of space, did something in him he didn't expect. Now Daniel had an overview effect after his vision in Daniel chapter seven. He says he says he did in his own words. If you look at the very last verse, uh, verse, verse twenty-eight, he said, "I Daniel." This is at the end of his visions in chapter seven. I Daniel was deeply troubled by my thoughts, and my face turned pale but I kept the matter to myself. Now, why did Daniel have an overview effect where he was deeply troubled by his thoughts? His face had turned pale. He sounds a little bit like William Shatner. I was incredible. I didn't know why, but I was just filled with grief. I didn't know what it was. I was crying. Why? Well, because I think the vision that Daniel gets in chapter seven of Daniel is a zooming out and it is an actual distillation of the entire biblical story, all in one night, one vision. We might say it's a distillation of the entire human story in one vision. And it was overwhelming. It, he looked back and he had a different perspective of life, different perspective of the future, different perspective of everything in his life that he ever had before because he all of a sudden saw the Bible story coming at him. And it's interesting because if we we just start the the chapter the way he starts it, we we read verse 1, and we find out that we're going back in time in Daniel. So it says, in the first year of Belshazzar. Now, Belshazzar was somebody we talked about a long time ago. The narrative is way beyond that. But now he's giving us a vision that happened back years ago when Belshazzar was king. So we're going back in time now, a flashback. And he says, when Belshazzar was king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. He says, Daniel said, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up. Now this is starting to get into what's called apocalyptic literature. It uses symbols. It has meaning to the people, especially back in his day, but it's not, it's going to leave a lot of mystery, but it's revealing something real about reality that we don't normally see. The four winds of heaven churning up the great sea for great beasts, excuse me, four great beasts, each different from the others came up out of the sea. Now, if you're somebody reading this in 500 BC when Daniel was lived and had this vision, the idea of the sea, the psyche of the ancient Near Eastern mind, when they hear the word sea, they're gonna think chaos, death, evil, fear. That's what the sea represented. And so this language of the four winds churning up The Great Sea is kind of like if you're watching a movie and it's a movie where there's a kid swinging on the swing set in the back of a farmhouse neighborhood kind of thing and all of a sudden there's this darkness and the clouds and lightning and thunder and this ominous cloud that's almost supernatural is starting to form over this innocent child in her backyard swinging. You would right away know something bad's getting ready to happen. It would get your attention. And that's what Daniel's vision is doing right away. The four winds are churning up, the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. And out of the sea comes a sequence of four beasts. Now these beasts, when they're described, are mutant beasts. They're a combination of weird kinds of twisted mutant beasts. And one it seems worse than the other. And what they're described as doing is devouring the people of the earth. And trampling upon the earth and ruining everything in their wake and crushing everything where their feet go. And the last one is kind of like this cyborg where it's half iron and half bronze and half flesh. And it's the worst of all four of them. And when you look at these beasts, each of them look undefeatable, absolutely undefeatable until the next one comes along. But the big problem in Daniel 7 is not the beasts. They end up not being a problem at all. The big problem in Daniel 7 is what comes next. Because see, none of these beasts are what make Daniel 7 one of the most quoted chapters by New Testament authors in the New Testament. It's what happens next. Let's look at verse 9. It says, and as I look, thrones were set in place, and the ancient of days took his seat. Now notice here, the ancient of days is obviously God. It talks more, it talks in the, talk, calls him the most high. So this is a term for God, the ancient of days, the most highs. He took his seat on the throne, but the, the unresolved problem here, the plot twist, is that it's more than just one throne. It's at least two. It's plural thrones. And what's happening here is all of a sudden the glaring problem of Daniel 7, there's an empty throne. It's not the beasts. It's that there's an empty throne next to God that nobody's sitting in, and that becomes the big question. That becomes the big plot twist. And remember I said Daniel 7 is a distillation of the Bible's whole story. This thrones, God's sitting on one of them, but then there's another one at least unoccupied, takes us all the way back to the very first page of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, day 6. In Genesis chapter 1, God is decreeing, let there be, and then it was. Let there be, and then it was. Everything God decrees happens. And then when you get to day 6, God says, let man be in the image of God. Male and female, both in the image of God so that they can rule over God's world. And all of a sudden, we realize that God created human beings, both male and female, in his image to be God's image, to rule with God, to exercise dominion in a godlike way, in a way that reflects his glory and his love and his power, in a way that God had this incredible plan for day six. But it never happens. Genesis 1, day six, never happens. Instead, we get Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, we run into two characters, Adam and Eve. In Hebrew, it means human and life. Human and life wanted to be their own God. They wanted to have their own throne. They wanted to live for their own glory. And so instead of being able to spread Eden throughout the world, this place of every tree that is pleasing to the eye and good for food and this land of springs of living water from the throne of God, this presence of God, instead of spreading Eden, instead of spreading the presence of God throughout the earth, instead human life were exiled to the thorns, a world of thorns and thistles and dust and death and every beast coming out of the sea. But there's. it's not the beasts that are the problem, it's the empty throne. It's Genesis 1, day six that hasn't happened and there's nobody to rule with God over the earth and so the earth is this thorns and thistles and dust and death and one beast after another because there's an empty throne. And so when we get to the empty throne problem Daniel continues to look around and he discovers in verse 13, he says, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. Now, when you read this with Old Testament lens on, like the Hebrew scriptures lens on, and you read this and you realize that always, always when you see the clouds of heaven and, and a, a, a being in the clouds, that's always God. Uh, the cloud that led the Israelites through the desert and through the Red Sea. The cloud that filled the temple with God's glory. The cloud in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, is always the presence of God. But in this case, it's the Son of Man coming in the cloud of heaven and he is brought to the ancient of days. It's not, that, it's not that the son of man became elevated to God. It's that God, the ancient of days, became the son of man. And the son of man now is approaching as a man, as a human, approaching in the presence of God. He is God in the clouds of heaven, and he's being brought to the throne next to the ancient of days, and he sits on that empty throne. And so verse 14 says, he was given authority as a man, sitting on the man throne, on the human throne, I should say, sitting on the human throne, like, he, like human was supposed to be in Genesis 1, day 6, he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshiped him. That's the God part. He's both human and he's both God. And his dominion, well, that would have been the Genesis, day one, uh, Genesis 1, day 6 thing. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away in his kingdom. That's Genesis 1, day 6, is one that will never be destroyed. And so what Jesus is saying, or excuse me, what Daniel is saying is that there's a son of man that's fully human, that's going to take the throne of Genesis 1, day 6, but he's also fully God. He rides in the clouds of heaven just like only God does in the Hebrew Scriptures. And everybody's going to worship him because only in the Hebrew Scriptures is God worshiped, nobody else, Not, not rightly so. Everything else is idolatry. Well, that's a plot line that takes a twist. That's an unresolved plot in Daniel chapter 7 that nobody knew quite what to do with. Oh, and it's interesting because that was, that was written hundreds of years before the times of Jesus. Hundreds of years. It's part of the Hebrew Scriptures. And we have copies of the Hebrew Scriptures and we have translation of the Hebrew Scriptures that are centuries before the time of Jesus. And so... At the time of Jesus, Jesus is walking around and his favorite term for himself that he calls himself more than any other term is the term son of man. Have you you read that? When you read the gospels, it's a little disappointing because you don't know quite what to do about that. You expect him to say son of God or Christ or Messiah. No, he says son of man. And he keeps saying that, so that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth, to forgive sins, I say to you, the one who is unable to walk all his life, rise, take up your mat, and walk. Matthew 9, 6. Jesus is saying, I want you to know that the, uh, the Son of Man has authority on earth, just like Daniel 7, 7. Now, he's not saying Daniel 7. I just want you to know the Son of Man has authority on earth, and so he heals a guy of his being able, unable to walk all his life to prove that he can forgive sins. And he does that all kinds of different places throughout the Gospels. Just read the Gospels with the Son of Man lens and you'll see all the ways that Jesus over and over uses that term. It was the most common term he used to describe himself. But finally when he gets to the end of his life and he's standing before the high priest, he's arrested, he's brought before the high priest, he is submitting himself to be crucified. But they're trying to find a legal reason to crucify him. So Jesus is standing before the high priest and the high priest point blank says, just tell us, are you the Messiah? The son of the blessed one? Now what do you think Jesus said? Well, Mark chapter 14 verse 62 tells us. What Jesus answered to that question was this. I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now everybody in the room knew exactly all of a sudden that scene, that chapter, that story came to their mind. It was a shared story and Jesus quotes from it and he says, that's me. It's sort of like if we go back to The Empire Strikes Back, Star Wars the other unresolved plot twist. And when you're watching in real time in 1980, it's a real shocker. When Darth Vader, who we thought was trying to kill Luke Skywalker, but then as Luke Skywalker is almost going to die because he's hanging from a thread, Darth Vader reaches out his hand and you know what he says next, right? I am your father. And Luke Skywalker goes, it's not true. He falls, you know. That one phrase, if I just got up here and I didn't say anything about Star Wars and I just said, I am your father, your mind all of a sudden would remember the Empire Strikes Back. Your mind would go to that epic scene. Your mind, I don't even have to put a picture up there. Your mind already can picture Darth Vader reaching out his hand and Luke Skywalker in denial that he's his father. We all know that if, well, most of us know, I'm sorry if I ruined the plot for you. Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's father. <laughs> that one phrase, "I am your father," is it, 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 it? brings up the whole scene. It's the whole epic scene of the film. It tells you, takes you back all the way to the film. Here's that thing. That one phrase is the whole storyline of all of Star Wars. So when Jesus says, "I am," and you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of the mighty one coming in the clouds of heaven everybody goes back to the story of daniel chapter 7 jesus is saying i am the son of man i'm the i'm the unresolved plot i'm the plot twist I'm the one who's going to bring back Genesis 1, day 6. I'm the human who ascends to the throne and rules with God. I'm the one who sits on the empty throne. I'm the son of man of Daniel 7. And the priest and everybody in the room knew exactly what he was seeing. They're remembering the whole chapter. They're remembering the whole story. And the priest tears his robe and says, it's not true. He says he's blasphemed and he has him be executed. That's what got Jesus crucified. Here's what's fascinating. It was the very act, the next act of the high priest having him crucified that actually caused the whole thing to happen. It's what caused, that allowed the Son of Man to defeat death and defeat human sin and to rise to go through the other side of death and death, and rise from the dead and be the first of a new creation, a new resurrected body, a new humanity, and to rise from the dead and ascend to the presence of the ancient of days and to take his seat at the right hand of the Most High where he is right now. It was the very actions of the high priest because he was so offended by what Jesus said that actually began the process of making it happen. And that's how the Bible is. It's just so amazing. Jesus is the one who's bringing back day one, Genesis one, I should say, day six. Right now, we live in a Genesis three world. Right now, we live in a world where there's kingdom after kingdom, empire after empire, one dominant cultural beast claiming to be the right side of history until it's not coming one after another. But the Son of Man has taken his throne next to the Ancient of Days. And he is going to bring heaven back to earth. When he comes back, he's going to bring resurrection to the world, resurrection to his people, and he's going to bring a new humanity. So, going back to Daniel chapter six, meanwhile the angel says to Daniel this in verse eighteen he says, "The holy people of the most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever, yes, forever and ever see here's it's the people of the most high that are going to be the new humanity that are going to be enthroned with the son of man to possess the kingdom of the son of man, the dominion of the son of man forever and ever. Because see, Jesus is bringing back the son of man is bringing back Genesis one day six. And that's the first chapter of the Bible. And that's why the very last chapter of the Bible, revelation 22 five says of the holy people of the most high, and they will reign forever and ever when Jesus returns and brings back Genesis one day six and throws Genesis three and a Genesis three world and our Genesis three bodies into the fire and there's resurrection of God's people and a new world and a new humanity. Genesis one and day six is restored. And when you see your life in that story, When you see yourself, when you see the people in your life, when you see every moment in your life, when you see every beast that's coming out of the sea devouring the world, devouring your life, all every circumstances that's bringing terror and bringing real harm, one after another, coming out of the sea, whatever it is in every circumstance, when you can see yourself in that story, it will change your life. Thank you.